if you would, uh, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6, the end of chapter 6 is where we're going to be. For those that heard Rich last week, I talked to him actually, and there's going to be some flow to this in that I know you were in Mark, I know you're in the kind of end of chapter 4, one of the most famous stories with the calming of the storm, so some of that context I think will come in handy, so you can run that program in the back of your head uh, while we get going this morning. Mark chapter 6, the end. Actually, you know, we're going to start Mark chapter 7, verse 31 is the way we're actually going to start. So Mark 7, verse 31. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you uh, for your kindness and love. Lord, just may your word speak clearly, Lord, that we would understand, Lord, the message that we are to hear this morning, to learn uh, what your spirit inspired Mark to tell, uh, Lord, his audience here. Pray that we would honor you and that your son would be glorified. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 7, verse 31. So I'm going to read this story and then we're going to work a little bit backwards. Mark chapter 7, verse 31 says, Then he returned, so talking Jesus, his disciples, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought, man, brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epathetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Is this normal? Or is this me? Is that okay? I might be all right. I think we're okay now. All right. I figured you guys didn't want to suffer through all of that. Okay, so if you remember what I just read, does anything in that passage strike you as strange? I'm sure there are a few Sunday school graduates, and you maybe have heard this story before. Most of us, I don't care if you've been a Christian for 30 or 40 years, come to this passage, and probably, and you should, because you're not a Jew living in the first century, nor a Roman reader of the Gospel of Mark, be kind of shocked, surprised, and ask the question in kind of your daily Bible reading, what in the world is going on? Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done plenty of healing. He's healed people who were lame. He's healed lepers who were unclean, who were made clean. He's healed individuals who were sick. He's raised a girl from the dead. He doesn't need to touch people. He can speak, and he can heal. He doesn't even need to speak, and he can heal. Yet, in this instance, here is a man who is, at least can't seem to hear and if he speaks, he doesn't speak well. He has a speech impediment. And look how Jesus heals him. 
this is odd. They bring the man, they beg him, Jesus, heal him. And he put his fingers into his ears. He spits. And then he touches his tongue. That is weird. That's extremely strange. And on its own, I don't know what in the world is going on. Because Jesus doesn't need to do this. So the question of why becomes extremely important. And I want to look at our time this morning at the end of 6 to get some context. And then the beginning of 7. And I think when we understand 7 and the principle of the first part of Mark 7, I think we'll understand the story. So we're going to discover what that story means. But as of now, it's weird and strange. So we'll leave it there. Flip over uh, Mark 6, verse 53, and we'll get a little context here. So what Jesus has been doing is he's been spending time with his disciples. He just did the feeding of the 5,000, one of the miracles that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's around Passover time, so we know one year from his crucifixion and his resurrection. We've seen that if you were listening well last week in Mark chapter 4, there's a bigger context of Jesus teaching his disciples. Um, This idea of listening, is there good soil? Um, Do you, as a person, when you hear the good news and you hear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he has authority to cleanse sin, do you listen? Do you believe? Does it change the way you live? And you saw with the calming of the storm, he just got done teaching that lesson that the kingdom of God will grow. And then the disciples fear and think it's all going to end in the middle of a lake. Well, they didn't understand, and that's why Jesus seems to be so frustrated with them. You weren't listening. I just told you the kingdom it might look small, it might look unimpressive, but it will grow into something that is far grander. And so he's teaching. There's also a context of rejection, because right after that point, there is this consistent rejection that goes on. Not only in chapter 5 when he goes to the Decapolis the first time, he actually does a miraculous miracle where he heals a man who has a legion, that is thousands of demons. He heals him. And their first response is, leave. So actually in that story, you probably didn't get there last week, but Jesus calms the storm. They go to the other side of the lake. He heals this demon, this demoniac, man with demons, cleanses him. They actually get back in the boat and they go away the same day. They say, get out. (laughs) We saw all the pigs die and we just want you to leave. So they don't respond and say, they don't embrace him. They reject him. And then chapter six, Jesus goes to his own hometown. He's rejected there. They say, no, we know who you are. And they just think he's too common. You have the disciples who seem to not really be believing too much. The end of chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000 or just those are men, so it could be up to 25,000. There is this reality there that we don't have it in Mark, but the parallel in John chapter 6, they reject him there. And then after he does all these miracles, John or Mark 6, 53, it says, that when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in the villages, cities, or countryside, they, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made 
well. So there's this idea that even though there's rejection, they go, you can do something for us. You can heal. And so anyone that has a sick friend, a sick mother, a sick father, a sick son, a sick daughter, they seek out Jesus and say, we want you to heal them. They love him for that. But in spite of all of that, there's going to be another rejection, and that's chapter 7. It's rejection of the Pharisees. And this rejection is a little bit different because these are the religious, the ones who want to honor God. And we'll see here in this story that when they attempt to honor God, they actually honor God, but they don't by honoring his commandments they miss the whole point because they misunderstand this difference between what is actually God's command and what are the traditions of men. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees... And you'll see some of your Bibles have this parenthesis mark. This is kind of an editorial. This is a comment. Mark's giving this because he has a Roman audience. And you, just like the Romans, go, what is going on? Is this about hygiene? Is it that they're kind of gross and they're eating things with their hands dirty? And Mark's trying to explain, no, this is bigger than that. It's not just, it's not something that's hygienic. This is something that is religious. This is something that is this ceremonial idea of clean or unclean. And the idea about clean or unclean is simply what is acceptable to God. So things that are clean, God accepts. Things that are unclean, God does not accept. The Pharisees have now built a system by which there's a certain way that you wash your hands and that's going to make you clean. That is, it's not going to make you clean like, oh, my hands are no longer dirty. It's going to make you clean and that God is going to accept you. And so he explains that, verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. So we know, is it the Levitical law of, hey, the priests, they need to wash before they enter the temple. No, this is something that's been added, something that is from their own tradition. They actually wrote, and you'll find even today within Bible study, that you have commentaries that kind of help you understand your Bible. And they had something called the Mishnah, which is their commentary. A quarter of that book was well, probably about a little bit more than this. A quarter of that book was on purity, cleansing. In fact, there's 30 chapters that deal with this idea of how to stay clean. Verse 4, and when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. Again, we look and we go, this is strange. This is how we know it's even more than we're talking, not just hands. This is the ceremony. This is when they go to the marketplace, and this is going to become important for our understanding of the story of the man who is healed. There is, in their culture, people who are radically different. And within the Jewish culture, the ones who are not Jewish, that is the Gentile, are considered unclean. 
And so when they go to the marketplace and they rub shoulders with those unclean people, they're unclean. And so they go home and this is how they ceremonially, it's not what the Old Testament has said, but it's what the rules they made. Different ways they could be more spiritual and more holy in their own understanding. And so there's ways they do all these things, the ways they wash, the ways they clean, the way they do their pots, pans, and their dining couches. So that's the way they live their life. Afraid at all times that something they do might make them appear unclean. And it's not thinking in your mind here of the religious that they're concerned so much with God thinking they're unclean, but this has become a system where they think their friends think that they're unclean. They think that, oh, you'll think I'm not righteous or I'm not, in our vernacular, cool, okay? They're afraid of that, so they're trying to give all these visible signs that I'm not like the Gentile. I'm not like the unclean. And they start to miss the whole point, which is this was always about God and our relationship with him. It didn't have to do with the vertical. It had to do with, or the horizontal. It had to do with the vertical. I can remember, I think now, is the first, if you're coming into the gym, right, right. Is that the concession stands now? What's in there? Is that what's in there? Okay, there was a time, I am a graduate, there was a time, eighth grade, and we had Bible class in there. And our teacher sometimes was late. And I remember one time, one of my classmates took a Twinkie, and there's a fan that was running, and he thought it'd be funny, like, you know, this is, this is not a prescription, don't do this. But he thought it'd be funny that he throws it up in the fan and it hits the fan and, of course, it explodes and it goes everywhere. And about 10 seconds later, the teacher walks in. And I can tell you that everyone in that room, and I want you to get this picture because this is the Jew-Gentile relationship, said, kind of moved away from the guy who threw the Twinkie and kind of said, we're not with him. He did that. Of course, all the guys were egging him on to do it. But the minute it happened and there was a cost, they said, oh, we're over here with, and he's over there. There's a separation because we don't want to be associated with this guy because he's going to get in trouble. And we want him to take the blame. So that, that gives you a little bit of this unclean, clean kind of idea. of They're separated. They're going, I don't want to be associated with that person. That's what's going on here with the Jew and the Gentile. Now, the issue that they're going to bring to Jesus is your disciples, the followers of Jesus, they don't do this. They seem to follow what God says in Scripture, but they don't go any further. They don't follow the traditions of man. So they ask that question. Verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Again, don't think they're eating with hands that are dirty as much as defiled. That is, they didn't do the right ritual to be ceremonial clean within the traditions of the Pharisees. And they're saying, why don't they do that? They should do that, shouldn't they? And Jesus says, and I know high school students can appreciate this. I was more sarcastic then probably than any time in life. Jesus gets sarcastic with them. That is, if you know sarcasm, you say one thing, but you actually mean the opposite, and you can usually tell by the tone you're not being serious. That's Jesus here. Verse 6, and he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? 
as it is written. So sarcasm, the well, no, it wasn't necessarily, this is not good, right? It's sarcastic. And Isaiah said this about hypocrites, those who are acting one way, but in their heart believe and do the opposite. The word comes from the idea of an actor, that is, you're just pretending. They're pretending to be godly and religious and holy, but really they only care about themselves. Isaiah prophesied, saying, quote, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What they really care about isn't pleasing God as much as having authority over people and people doing what they want them to do. Their heart's not in it. This also does a little bit of, I think, help, a little work here with the heart. We're talking more the mind than your emotions. So the idea of the heart in Scripture isn't simply when we think of the heart, that is kind of a Disney idea of love. Uh, we're talking about everything, your being, the way you think, the heart. In other words, they don't truly want to worship. They're just trying to teach their own things. And Jesus criticizes them for them for that. And in verse 8, you leave, he says, in summary, the commandment of God to hold the traditions of men. That is, and when it comes to it, and you have to choose between obeying God and obeying man, you obey man. Why? Because it reveals what's really going on in your heart, in your desires. Because you really don't want to please God if it costs you something. You don't really want to please God if it's going to mess with your life. You leave the commands of God to make sure you've the traditions of man. And then he uses an illustration because there is an easy one here where the difference, the difference, illustrating the difference of the commandment of God and the tradition of men. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the command of God. I should have read that differently, right? Sarcasm. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, quote, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your traditions. And you have that you have handed down, and many such things you do. That is, this is one illustration of a whole list of things you do. And what they did is this is a way, and my boys, I have three little boys, they do this all the time. This is a way that they're going to solve the problem by acting like they're righteous when really they're not trying to be kind and righteous at all. In this situation, this idea of Corbin, it's a way of saying they give it to God. And so the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother. That is, at a bare minimum, don't let them starve. That would not be honoring your father and mother. We all agree? And so you're religious, and you don't really want to give mom and dad money. You don't really want to help them. There's a loophole. And it's religious, so it actually makes you look good, not bad. And that loophole is you declare it Corbin. So let's say you have a piece of land that you could help your parents with. I don't know, in this culture, maybe you could grow something on it. Maybe you could sell it. And you go ahead and say, I'm going to make it Corbin. That is, I'm going to give it to God 
and they would refrain the use of it for themselves. That is, they're going to keep farming it, eating off of it, but it's God's, so I can't give it to you, Mom. It's God's. I can't. I would love to help you, but I've given it to God. I'm sorry. Jesus' point is, Look, the fifth commandment is clear. Honor your father and mother. Yet you have this tradition that people are misusing and doing kind of almost hiding their funds so they don't have to do it. My three little boys, this is what they do when they start fighting over a single toy or a single thing they want to play with. Eventually, they figure out, and the youngest is usually this way, and I, I, can, I was younger, I was a younger brother, so I get it too. You're little, so you don't have much, you know, over it. So you're not really going to win the fight. And so he knows that he goes, eventually they're fighting, fighting, and I'm getting frustrated, frustrated with them, that eventually I'm going to just go, okay, guys, what's the solution here? And his solution is, oh, dad, the younger son, why don't you take the toy? And then no one will play with it. That's a solution. And is it because he's trying to be kind? No. He's like, I just don't want him I don't want my older brother, I don't want Owen to have this toy, so I'm going to go ahead and be, I'm going to be the peacemaker, and I'm going to give it up. He's not really giving up. If he really wanted to serve his brother, he would give him the toy and share. But that's not his intention. His intention is simply to set it aside so that it can't be used. (laughs) We know that kind of feeling, where we take something and we want it to appear like it's righteous and good that we're doing this, but really we're trying to do something that is wrong. We're trying not to serve. We're trying not to love. And so that's what's going on here with this whole tradition of Corbin. And this is the idea that I want you to take away, which is what your hands do doesn't necessarily reflect your heart. What your hands do, what your actions do, don't necessarily reflect your heart. And that is a scary thing. It's a scary thing as a parent because you really don't know why until your kids grow up, they're doing what they're doing. So you may have a child who is obedient and who is faithful, who is doing these quote unquote good things, but he's doing them for the wrong reason. That is, he's doing, he's going to church because daddy goes to church. He's serving and loving people because he knows that's what dad wants him to do. And then, of course, you grow up and you have to make up your own decisions and you do what you want to do. Well, if it wasn't actually what they wanted to do, they'll stop doing it once that external pressure is removed. Now, for you guys, that's an important lesson. That's one of the things you have to learn. You go to a Christian school, and therefore you're more in line with the Pharisees in that you have parents, I would assume, who go to church, and maybe you go to church. You have a school that makes you take Bible classes. That is, there's no choice. The perfectionist in you says, I have to get an A. I have to get a 4.0. Therefore, I got to get an A in Bible, even though I don't like it, even though I don't want to study it, even though I don't care. But you do it and you appear like you do. Why? Because I want the grade. The issue here that Jesus is saying is you can do righteous things or appear righteous, but your heart's really not in it. You don't really want to do it. And that's just 
as bad as if you were doing something wrong. It looks better, but the heart is wrong, and it's just as bad. And that's what he's going to go on here and say. He's going to say, what defiles a man? It's not what's on the outside. It's not this idea of cleanse and clean. It's this idea of the heart. It comes from in, and we got to deal with the heart. The danger of being like the Pharisees is real. Obedience just to please others. This has been a problem for Israel. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 11. Or Isaiah chapter 1, excuse me. There's a reason Jesus quotes Isaiah. This isn't where he quotes, but very similar idea here. Of Israel often, they started to go, okay, we know what pleases God. What pleases God is when we do the right thing and we obey his commandments. In our vernacular, it's when we go to church and when we do our devotions and we pray and we do these things. And you can say, I went on a missions trip and I helped the poor. Those are good things. But God doesn't want them if your heart your will, your affections are not part of it. And so Israel, they might offer sacrifice, but in the end, if their heart's not in it, God doesn't care. And that's what he says, Isaiah chapter one, verse 11. What to me, he says, is the multitude of your sacrifices that I don't care if you sacrifice every single day. If your heart is wrong and you're truly wicked, I don't care. I don't care if we go to church for two hours on Sunday. But then you act and mistreat people the rest of the week. He says, I don't care. Says the Lord, I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath in the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Surely it's a good thing to do these religious things, to have and to honor the Sabbath. After all, Honoring the Sabbath is one of the commandments. Jesus is pointing out just what God had seen and what he had seen in Israel is that they didn't do it for the right reason. And this motive, why you do what you do, actually matters. It matters. Because it's an issue of the actions, the outside, it's not what makes you clean. It's not what makes you acceptable to God. Well, what does? Go back to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 in that little section, 31 on, with the deaf man who is deaf and it appears mute or speech impediment. What defiles a person? What makes them unclean? And not, again, clean and dirty, but clean and what makes them acceptable to God? Or what makes them unacceptable to God? Jesus in this whole section is trying to make these 
people understand. And Mark, the author of the gospel, is also saying, Romans, Gentiles are reading this, and he's saying, you are not unclean because you're not Jewish. You're not unclean because you don't keep the Sabbath. Jesus has the authority in Mark to go and say, I know the Jews are saying you're unclean, but I am going to say what is unclean. Jesus is the ultimate determiner of what is clean and what is unclean. And now when you come to this deaf man, and we think about that ceremonial cleansing, defilement, undefilement, clean, unclean, acceptable to God, unacceptable to God, we come and we see 33, verse 33, that when Jesus does this strange, odd thing, that he puts fingers in his ear, Again, Jesus could have just said, you're healed, go home. Next. That seems to be what he's doing at the end of six, right? People come, he heals, and people come, he heals. Mark says, but we need to know this story. His audience needs to know the story. We need to, in context, need to know this story, and we need to know what Jesus does. And that is, he puts his fingers in his ears, he spits, and he touches this man's tongue. Number one, we're in the Decapolis. So we've moved on since the Pharisees, and we are now in Gentile territory, which means this man is a Gentile. Remember one of the things that they did that made them unclean, the Jewish, the Pharisees? One of the things they did is they went to the marketplace because they spent time in the marketplace with non-Jewish people, Gentiles. So they had to go and do the ceremonial washing. What in the world do you think they would do if they then saw Jesus, who's known as a rabbi and a teacher, go stick his ears, touch the Gentile, spit, which also Leviticus 15 talks about, is an unclean clean thing to do, and then, most radical of all, he goes and he touches the man's tongue. That is shocking. It's absolutely outrageous and shocking to them. And the readers go, holy cow, look at the Pharisees here who they act in this way that we have to do all of these things to be clean. And Jesus is simply saying here that he is the one, he has the authority to decide what is clean and what is unclean. So what is clean? Whatever Jesus has touched. And so this Gentile, he's done none of these ceremonies at all in his life. He's probably never kept the Sabbath day. Yet Jesus says, I'm going to heal you. He has the authority to do that. Mark's been telling the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is the son of God. That he can make the unclean clean. You and I, including this man, including anyone who ever has lived, it doesn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile, is ultimately unclean because of sin. Because we have marred the character of God. We've rebelled. And so how do we fix that? Do we do it by, okay, let's figure out ways to externally make ourselves appear like we're better than everyone else. That is something we do well as human beings. And it doesn't go away. 
I love my grandfather to death. He's 90 years old. And I laugh at him every time because now he lives up in Minneapolis and he lives in a, uh, he's very proud. He's in the independent side of a facility that has assisted living and independent living, uh, kind of an apartment um, senior you know, center living place. But what's funny is, even at 90 years old, and I think most of you know mortality rates, if you make it to 90, you're like, you're the one percenter. Not much, many of us are going to make it to that. But even at 90, he is proud. I live on the side of the building that's independent. He is still walking three miles, and he's more athletic than the next 90-year-old. It's just what we want to do. We want to compare. And the longer you live, it doesn't go away. And I just laugh because I think, Grandpa, but you're 90. But he's still proud that I'm I'm a well, healthy 90-year-old. We always want to compare. Jesus here is saying, don't do it. When you think of your relationship with God, there is no comparing. There is no, you can, there's nothing you can do. We all, when it comes to God, are on the same playing field. We've, Roman says, all fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so it matters now what you do and what your problem is. And the problem is the heart. And we need the only solution for the heart, which is Jesus needs to touch it. Mark's going to continue on and he's going to describe the life of Christ the last year of his life, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And obviously, more authors of the New Testament are going to start to fill in the blanks and understanding of what we need to do and live out as Christians and believers. But it starts here. There's nothing until you understand you need a new heart. That was Israel's problem, and that's our problem. And the only person who can give you a new heart, give you new desires, and make you clean is the same man that touches this Gentile's tongue, and that's Jesus. And the only question left is, has Jesus made you clean? Has he given you a new heart? Scripture is very clear. The way you do that is you repent of your sin, and you put your faith and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for even this short time to look at this story and hopefully help our understanding that when we see such strange things in the way that you healed this man, that we ask questions and wonder why that is. And that we can look back and we can see, oh, there's this context of clean and unclean, what is acceptable and unacceptable. And there's no greater question than that. What is acceptable to you? Especially what is acceptable if it is not outward actions? Lord, we know that it's a changed heart that loves you and loves Christ, that does good deeds because we love you, not because we have to. Lord, help us understand that truth this morning. Lord, we just pray this in your son's name. Amen.
Didn't it take him 12 hours? 12 hours. Okay, 12 seconds. He probably said more helpful things than I would say. But just, yeah, just, this is a great passage where you ask questions of why in the world is that there? What's the context? So I think that's, that's the big thing of reading and going, why in the world would Jesus put fingers in his ears? I made a big point. I've been preaching through Mark. I made a really big point in the early Mark that he doesn't have to touch people. And then all of a sudden you get into Mark 6 and 7 and actually end in 8, and he's touching people. I'm like, why in the world? He doesn't need to touch people. So I think it's that way of which you ask those questions and you go, okay, there's, there's a point here. And I think the grander point of his authority that he can take something unclean and make it clean, that's driving back to Mark's bigger, bigger point. These two questions for small group, right? Yeah, so the big question is, what makes you clean or unclean? Which the second question explains that question better, which is, what makes you acceptable to God and what makes you unacceptable? Because we don't use those words clean and unclean, but the, that's the way the text uses it. So what, what, what is it going to be that makes you acceptable? What does God desire, particularly if it's not all the outward signs in and of themselves? That is, don't go away thinking, oh, that's, that's perfect. I'm just going to tell mom my heart was in the right place. You know, I didn't. Um, it still matters what you do, but God goes a step further. It's not just what you do, it's why you do it, so... Is that it? Thank you. All right. Thank you, everybody.